0: Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $198 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. I hope everyone is having a restful and healthy summer. I was able to get away for a few weeks, and despite the many hoops we now have to jump through to travel, I would encourage you to take the days off and enjoy some downtime away from the home office. Turning to the equity markets, the last nine months since Vaccine Monday last November have been a strong period for value stocks. We covered some of the reasons for values come back in our January podcast, and today I'm excited to expand our horizons to take the pulse of value investing in international markets with Paul Ehrlichman head of the global value team at ClearBridge, and portfolio manager, Grace Sue. Both Paul and Grace are PMs on the international value, global value, and international small cap strategies. Paul is joining us today from Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, better known as the mushroom capital of the world, while Grace is logging in from San Francisco, what some would call the sourdough capital of the world. Maybe we can plan a culinary show in the future, but for today... (laughs) Our topic is the outlook for undervalued companies outside the US. We'll examine the macro and micro factors at work in today's podcast, Trends Transforming the Global Value Landscape. Grace, Paul, welcome to the virtual booth. Thank you, great to be here.
1: Thanks, Jeff.
0: Now, global growth expectations have been ratcheting down over the last couple of months as the Delta variant continues to cause problems in Asia. China partly shut down the world's third busiest port here recently after a case was discovered there. Australia is facing the worst crisis yet in the pandemic, and an advisor to the government in Japan has said the spread in Tokyo is now out of control after the Summer Olympics. You've seen a shift into growth here in the U.S. as COVID cases have started to rise here recently. And if you look at global indices, the NMSCI emerging market indice year-to-date is barely positive. The EFA is positive around 10%, and the S&P 500 is the leader right now at over 18%. Now, Paul, I want to turn to you here first. How are the forces driving international value stocks similar
2: and maybe different to those in the U.S.? I think the big transcendent similarity we see is the shift in what's called the Fed put or the central bank put. And this is is really significant and, and profound. That you know, we had a period where, since the global financial crisis, central balance sheet, central bank balance sheets expanded, but the the real the real economy balance sheets tended to contract as the banking systems delevered and contracted, and we had austerity in Europe. Now, the Fed put has shifted from inflating asset prices, kind of a wealth effect that Bernanke talked about, trickle down to a trickle up. You know, if you listen to any of the Fed governors, they sound like uh, sociologists now. They're really concerned about inequality in the climate, which is different. And not that that those aren't good things to be concerned about, but generally your monetary authorities are not quite that enlightened. But they really are focused on inflating asset prices, inflating real good prices and wages now in the real economy. And you see that in many of the differences between the global financial crisis environment and what happened after that. Versus now. And that's everywhere in the world. I mean, she in China talks about happiness for the people. And, and whether it's in Europe or the US or Asia, inequality, decarbonization, and the climate are, are driving a new phase, an economic phase, and, and a completely different dynamic. And that's universal. Also, this is coinciding with what we call entering the analog phase of the technology cycle, the commercialization and mass application part of the cycle. So we're we're seeing that you look at EVs, factory automation, the Internet of Things, AI, Web 3.0, all of these things are going from, you know, a few hundred thousand vehicles made in a tent of dubious quality to mass production and mass adoption. And, and we're begin, we're seeing the effect of that with the shortages of copper, the shortages of metals, the pricing power. In a lot of the cyclical companies, the industrial companies, and that's really everywhere in the world. There's Europe and Japan are a bit ahead of us. And this is getting into kind of what's different. You know, one of the big things that's different a bit is as we go from kind of, let's say, the invention and innovation early stages, uh, largely around the consumer, US companies are great at that, right? And we have the biggest companies in the world at that, the FANGs. Now you get into, the The mass application and commercialization, and typically Germany Europe the Japanese are the ones that are leaders at that think about it we didn't in, we invented the transistor and no one had an American transistor radio you know ten years later. The Germans and Japanese and the, and the South Koreans they make all the battery technology there's no American battery technology going into any EVs or going into storage systems it's Japanese or German, so we see that the structure of non-U.S. markets is not only offer more cyclical operating leverage, but manufacturing is a larger portion and they tend to be very good at commercialization and scaling. So that's something different. And, and so non-U.S. firms, many of them are better positioned for the phase we believe we're going into. I mean, as I said, you know, you look at Volkswagen and EVs or, or Hyundai and EVs, um, and and the Chinese in battery technology and the Germans in battery technology. And Tesla wouldn't exist without Panasonic. So those are kind of some of the differences. And then the final difference is that the U.S. is kind of the epicenter of a bit of maybe a classic mania or kind of rhyming with Japan in 89 a little bit. And, and you know, dominated by a narrow basket of stocks, record high valuations, probably... International stocks are one-half to one-third the valuation relative to history of U.S. companies. We're at 20 to 100-year relative performance lows in emerging markets, the U.K., Europe, Japan, relative to the U.S. So the U.S. is you know, dominant in the indices, dominant in the top largest companies in the world, the highest relative and absolute valuations in history. So the U.S. is probably more vulnerable or at least offers lower relative returns for the average stock, not not, obviously you can pick value stocks within the U.S. and do very well. And what we see this, and I'll end with this, is that we see the dominance in the U.S. of companies where losses have been piling up and we see beginnings of leadership really from the March 2020 lows of companies overseas where cash has been piling up. So losses piling up has been very good and particularly good for the U.S. companies. The Goldman Sachs money losing company index has been booming, whereas overseas, what we're beginning to see is free cash flows and cash piling up beginning to work. And we think that's a big difference between the U.S. and international, that, that incredible free cash flow and cash generation that we're seeing overseas.
0: Yeah, higher free cash flow generation, more innovative companies, and attractive valuations. I feel like those are the three pillars of an attractive value stock. Now, Grace, I want to turn over to you here for a second. And I had an opportunity to read your latest international small cap commentary. And I came across an interesting stat on the tech growth characteristics that you see in emerging market small caps. Now, what makes the performance of small caps unique in both not only emerging but developed markets outside of the u s?
1: Well, Jeff, you know small caps have had a really nice period of outperformance since the the March lows last year. and And a lot of that has to do with the economic sensitivity of the small cap asset class, right? They tend to be smaller, more leveraged to domestic economies. And so um these businesses have, Uh, tended to outperform as we've recovered from the recession and shutdowns of last year. So small caps have have had a nice period of outperformance. And we think that that can continue um, based on sort of our our macro level thinking, but also especially outside of the U.S. And um, as Paul had discussed before, this largely relates to the differences in vaccination rates between the U.S. and, and the rest of the world, right? So We've seen that the U.S. has been able to largely normalize our way of life here, and, and the economies have reopened, and stocks have done well. And so uh, we think that as the rest of the world catches up with vaccine production and distribution, that their economies can also normalize and recover, and you know, the stock markets will, will fall in line. So we're very optimistic about small-cap stocks, and especially small-cap stocks outside the U.S., with respect to your question about, you know, how we how we find interesting ideas in small cap land, you know, small caps are really fun. There there's a lot of inefficiencies in the marketplaces. They tend to be more domestically focused companies. They're underfollowed or illiquid, and so you know we we have found that as we do our own work and we study this, the companies in detail. We're able to find a lot of undiscovered companies with good growth potential still trading at very reasonable valuations. One of the stocks is top of mind this morning because we got a takeout bid for uh, one of our companies, Stock Spirits Group. It's an Eastern European spirits distributor, the third largest in Europe but it was trading at half of the valuation as Diageo, the industry leader. And you know, it was uh, leveraged to a lot of the same themes of recovery and premiumization, but it was just you know, less followed and less well-known. And so you know, we're really happy that the market was able to kind of see our viewpoint on that name. So that's sort of one way that we, we kind of find value in international small-cap land.
0: Grace, interesting example. And Paul, I want to turn to you about a, a potential example. I know that you love the economics of European-based shipping companies right now. Yes. I mean, if you think about a business dynamic and a setup that couldn't be any better, it certainly was for the the shipping companies. Maybe talk a little bit about that industry, and maybe expand on any other sectors or industries that have you know be- better value opportunities, whether it's in Europe, Asia, or even the emerging markets. Yeah, shipping is just
2: has been a, a real rich example of the dynamics behind our pro-cyclical positioning in our strategies. And it's a combination of recovery and reopening beneficiaries, as well as companies' position for this transformation in policy and the economic landscape we talked about towards the a better better real economic activity. So the real economy doing well uh, and closing the gaps in, in a positive way with financial asset prices. So it's kind of an optimistic point of view of, of how the imbalances can, can work out. And, and so shippers, shippers really contain both those characteristics. They're benefiting from a rebound and, um, and a continuing rebound in the global economy. But one very important thing we're seeing, unlike the previous cycle, the super cycle, or the global financial crisis, we're not seeing a supply response from a lot of these cyclical areas because the cyclical companies, having been burned in the past, having just endured a very difficult period of st- secular stagnation, they're not expanding supply. So we're seeing prices rise, shipping rates rise, but it's really across the board. We see this in metals, mining, and, and basic industries and retail everywhere. Companies, even in the face of strong demand, are not expanding supply. So we we don't have a demand problem right now. We have a supply problem right now. And shipping and logistics are a great way to capture that. But they're not buying ships. They're not adding to supply. Rates are going to stay high. It's a stronger for longer part of of what we see in a lot of the cyclicals. So analysts are generally expecting earnings to fall by 70% over the next two to three years for shipping companies. And every quarter they report, they're pushing that out. So you look at a company like they're going to generate 50% of the value of their company, 50% in free cash flow over the next 18 months. That's, that's extraordinary. And the cliff of the collapse or the, the normalization of shipping rates, that keeps getting pushed out further and further because there's no supply response. It's kind of like we talk, you know, you hear people talk about potential for an inventory recession. And I go, well, we don't have inventories. How can you have an inventory recession? And you have a situation where, you know, the buyers don't want to load up on inventory because they think the prices are going to fall. The producers don't want to expand capacity because they think the prices are going to fall. Well, if everyone believes that, then the prices stay high. Um, And and we're really beginning to see, see that effect. And finally, getting into kind of the decarbonization and the green economy. When you talk about ships and you have an asset that's going to last 20, 30, 40 years, But the way you power that ship and it changes and is uncertain. In addition to the price of steel jumping 40%, all of a sudden it's hard to decide to build capacity because you don't know, well, I'm going to power it with ammonia, green hydrogen, electric power. Am I going to do diesel fuel bunker, put scrubbers in? So decarbonization really creates not just demand. But it also constrains supply in a lot of industries. So we're focused on industries where demand is rising, like copper, like shipping, and metals, steel, cement, where it's harder to build capacity because it's a a carbon-producing industry, but it's also an industry that benefits from growth and spending on decarbonization. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more.
0: I, I, people are over-indexing to the environment that we saw after the global financial crisis, plentiful yes. supply, constrained demand. You know, uh, obviously, consumers were delevering, banks were delevering. And with the reactivation of fiscal policy, I, I think that certainly has changed that dynamic. And companies are, still have that old school mentality um, that they're working off of, which will be good for profitability, but but Paul, you mentioned something in your last response uh, that I really wanted to key in on, which is decarbonization. And it really is, uh, you know, focuses on ESG and obviously it's core to what we do here at ClearBridge. But against conventional wisdom, companies in traditional value sectors like materials and industrials, they're playing a really important role in the global focus on decarbonization. Now, Paul, I'm going to start off with you again. C- can you maybe explain why this is to our listeners, and and how you approach climate change and other
2: ESG considerations in the portfolio? Yeah, so from a decarbonization and climate improvement and climate change standpoint, we're we're constructive. We're not a denier, and our focus is really on investing in those companies that will reflect a growing economy. Because so the basic belief, and you have to step back. and and embrace reality a little bit. We want to increase prosperity, we want to grow. So energy demand will rise. So we're gonna demand more energy, but we want that energy to be clean, abundant and cheap. And so to make that happen, we need to, to make a massive investment in our infrastructure and there's a transformation. And that involves taking things that we need in our lives that make our lives necessary, like plastics, like electronics, like electricity (laughs) and and the analog things in our lives and decrease, dematerialize, some people call it, or or become more efficient. And we invest in many, many companies that are beginning to get credit for this, but really don't get credit for this. But they, they embrace the dirty industries, whether it's natural gas, fossil fuels, plastics, fertilizers, for food efficiency packaging logistics transportation and we can you can either avoid those industries because they produce carbon or you can invest in those industries with companies that are having a transformational radical impact on the way those industries operate now grace i want to move over to you anything to
0: add maybe on the the small cap side from a decarbonization or an esg perspective
1: well i mean i you know in general i think for small cap land we need to be more creative right when it comes to some of these larger esg themes because you know we're we're, we're not able to own the high profile teslas or solar edges of the world right so we generally are looking for areas where we can be the enablers of um, environmentally friendly policies or, or decarbonization policies and so there there's some stocks in our portfolio we think are great examples of this uh, in Italy, there is a company called Meritecnamot, which is a fairly well-known plant engineering and construction firm. They they specialize in the petrochemical and fertilizer industry, and and their legacy business is rebuilding nicely from the downturn. But what's really interesting about this company is that they've spent the past few years really investing in an energy transition business. So they're developing new generation technologies to help their clients decarbonize their own production processes. And through this investment now, they're looking at a pipeline that's that's over $6 billion in potential orders, and, and they're actually starting to bid on them now. So this isn't something that's a pipe dream decades in the future. We're going to see revenue and earnings from this in the next 18 months and significant you know, earnings growth impact from this energy transition business for Mayor, But is trading still at Low teens, PEs, which is you know generally what you'd expect uh, an industrial, heavy industrials company to trade at. But once I think the market starts to recognize the potential growth of this green energy transition business for them, that the re-rating here is really significant. Another stock we had in the portfolio we've talked about a lot lately is AMG, Advanced Metallurgical Group. Um, and it's interesting from a few different angles. So, so it's, a, it's a metals company. Uh, they have two main divisions. They, in the critical materials division, they make vanadium and lithium, which is very important for, for batteries and energy storage. And then they also have an engineering solutions division where they, they make vacuum furnace equipment for, for jet engines. And they have specialty alloys that they use. So, so they're cleaner to make and recycle and, and are, are lighter and more weight efficient. So, you know, they're, they're strong ESG tailwinds for this company, but, but they've taken it a step further where they've actually analyzed the, the benefit of their carbon reduction technologies. And they estimate it to be 51 million tons of CO2 per year. And if you take the current price of carbon credits right now, that equals two and a half billion um, of potential carbon credit uh, value to this company whose market cap is is not even a billion. So you know they're looking to certify and potentially monetize this, but but it's an interesting angle, and it sort of highlights how. You know, in our stock selection process, we tend to be more creative, I think, than than your typical value manager or typical uh, investment manager, because we we don't shy away from industries that are labeled as bad for certain themes or or are um, you know not participating in certain themes. We actually try to think about, all right, well, is there another way to approach it? Are there companies doing things differently? and are there certain angles of opportunity that are not exploited in the stock price yet that we can invest at a reasonable price we can really benefit from going
0: forward? Well, I have one question that's certainly on my mind, and I think on the minds of most of the listeners here, which is the elephant in the global economy, which is China. What's your outlook in China? Obviously, you've seen a huge regulatory response here since last November. Actually, since last November, you've seen 52 major regulatory moves by Beijing. And literally yesterday, the online insurance space is the latest area to come under fire. So the question I have is, has this aggressive regulatory stance made the JD.coms of the world or the tutoring companies or now the online insurance companies attractive to you as a value investor, or do you still see risk here in this space? Now, Grace, do these, you know, after obviously the sell-off that we've seen in the regulatory stance, are, you know, some of these areas attractive to you as a value investor?
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, we've been looking uh, pretty carefully at, you know, in particular, I've spent some time on the, the tech names because those were, the largest in in the index and and also just you know in the popular media, things like that. And just to, I guess I had a, had a couple of thoughts to start with the you know technology is is important for the Chinese government, and we we don't think that that the government is looking to to destroy these companies or to stop them. It's, it, they're not looking to, to harm the tech sector. They're actually quite proud of what they've been able to grow and develop over the years, which are some of the most innovative and world-leading companies that we have around the world. Beijing's main consideration is and always has been social stability, right? They have a billion and a half people to provide for, and they cannot tolerate instability. And so, so that's their primary concern and you know we're not in 1989 anymore where they can roll tanks through Tiananmen square i mean that's not the way they promote stability nowadays it's through the control of information flow and so they need the technology companies to help them with that so so we think that you know the the technology sector is still very investable it's just that you you really have to understand the government wants to have companies that are aligned with its intentions and its um, and its purpose, and um, the other thing to keep in mind is that the data that is collected by these technology companies ultimately is owned by the government, and so those are you know two important things to keep in mind. On the the regulation front, you know, as Paul was discussing, it, you know, there will be more regulation going forward. Part of why a lot of these private sector Chinese companies were able to grow so quickly in the past few decades was because regulation was more loosely defined, or it was still evolving as these companies were defining their industries. And so they were able to parlay success in one area into another, and then they built up into monopolies. And so you know, the government is realizing that, and it's realizing that these these companies are becoming pervasive in everyday life, and there needs to be a more sound structural framework around industries and and how companies are able to to grow and parlay their successes into other areas so we expect there to be more regulation and it's not a bad thing for the long term development of its own financial and capital markets and the well-being of its people um, it, this is something that needs to happen. It's just that it, it may take some time. And, and, you know, government has come out and outlined the next five years, it's certain goals that it's going to promote. So, so it's pretty clear what they're trying to do. It's not a bad thing in the long run. And for us, you know, we are taking a look right now, trying to kind of kick the tires and, and be ready to, to make some investments. We don't own a whole lot in, in China right now, especially um, the larger cap names, and with the small cap names, we actually think it could be an opportunity because one of the government's goals is this anti-monopoly clause, which uh, will be helpful to smaller companies that previously were forced to either choose a side among the big players, or they would be um, really smothered by competitive pressures. And so if the government is helping to more align the playing field for them, it could be positive for, for smaller companies. The last thing I'll say is for us, regardless of what investments we make in China, it is very clear to us that the risk premium that you demand should be higher now going forward for the inherent risks related to the regulation as well as the government control of of data.
0: Great, great. That was the biggest question that I had on on my mind and uh, continues to be on global investors' minds at this point. And we're running up on time here, but I do think we have time for, for maybe one more question. And Paul, I'm going to send it over to you. What's your outlook for the value complex and the performance going forward? And are there any catalysts that you're looking out for?
2: Well, as we said, that I think the policy and the miscalibration of investors are the big things that we're taking advantage of. So there's been the shift in the investment environment, the shift in the economic environment. And we're seeing you know, the fundamentals are coming through. And so the, the relative earnings growth and estimate momentum for Europe is better than the fangs right now for the first time ever. So we're, we're going to continue to look, since we're bottom up, we can think whatever we want, but we need to see signs that fundamentally companies are continue to generate free cash flows, companies continue to generate strong growth and wait for investors to really recalibrate to the you know it's kind of like value managers were told don't fight the old fed well i think everyone else you know the lesson from us is well don't fight the new fed either and we're going to see stimulation of the real economy so we're not inflationists i, I don't know if you know inflation doesn't really have to rocket we just need strong nominal gdp growth and policies that support strong nominal gdp growth if we had a one macro thing to look at it'd probably be velocity we think velocity could begin to pick up and look for our companies to continue to drive earnings. Once again, we're, we're stronger for longer. So we're, we're looking at the companies. Like just this week, an analyst came out and said, you know what? I, I think I've got to take my 2022 estimates up for Maersk, And the report was actually titled Stronger for Longer. So there's this huge discount on a lot of value stocks that, let's say, financials and cyclicals and companies that may have been left behind in the period of secular stagnation, we're looking at those companies. That's where we think the opportunity is. That's where we have the the greatest variant perception with the market and investors. And we see tremendous earnings growth at a huge discount. And so we'll just watch that stock by stock, as well as from a top-down standpoint, We'll watch to see that continues to close. Um, you know, inflation getting out of hand and a sharp rise in interest rates obviously could derail that. So what we're actually thinking is, you know, we have a, a bit of a Goldilocks for value stocks. You haven't heard that for a long time, right? Environment where growth is good and the yield curve doesn't overly steepen and rates don't rise too much, but we have strong nominal growth, above trend nominal growth that favors operating leverage in cyclical sectors. And in the short term, you know, we've got this this backlog boom that we believe is coming where, you know, you have the lowest inventory to sales ratio in history. So we're going to look for how, not just how demand comes along, but also how companies are doing in that supply chain and dealing with rising costs and how they begin to fulfill their record backlogs. And Paul, I,
0: I couldn't agree more with you. I do think it's a Goldilocks situation for the international space. You look over to the Eurozone, right? European equities uh, saw valuations fall, even though EPS revisions have been the strongest in 20 years. Great catch up trade value. They're attractively priced right now. Going to start to see the recovery funds being implemented this summer. You look over to Japan, you can say it's a, a little bit of a value play. Valuations are attractive, positioning is light finally moving through the COVID and political uncertainty that's been plaguing Japanese equities. And then I'll just close with emerging markets, right? They've had headwinds ranging from China's credit impulse peaking, US dollar being a little bit more resilient than anticipated. And then what we talked about with the uncertainty with regulation in China, but also maybe more importantly, you're going to see more of a convergence of vaccination efforts between EM and DM, which has really helped uh, to spur higher growth differentials in favor of emerging markets. And last thing I'll mention here overlooking fact that the EU has now overtaken the US with vaccination rate of around 70%. And China is finally starting to ease at the margin, doing their first rate cut here recently. You should see credit growth bottoming here over the next couple of months. And fiscal policy is going to be much more accommodative in the second half as we move towards the 20th party Congress next year, which obviously is a very important thing in China every five years. So long story short, I, th- I think it's a very nice setup for the international space and the value complex. Well, everybody, that's all the time that we do have for today. Paul Grace, I just want to thank you so much for, for sharing your insights with us on the international value landscape. Obviously, there's quite a number of opportunities abroad at this point in the cycle, and it's a good time to, to rethink your international value exposure. So thank you for joining me on the call. Always a pleasure, Doug.
1: Thanks, Jeff.
0: And thank you everybody for dialing into this month's podcast. We hope that you have a safe and healthy rest of the summer and we hope that you'll join us for the next ClearBridge podcast in September. Take care. Please note the following past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of August 12, 2021, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.